This has always been a very surprising God, Mark wants to make clear. Delivering their ancestors from Egypt via a man like Moses, a man who had no desire whatsoever to be a leader. Selecting someone like the shepherd's son David to be their chosen king when everyone assumed that the king would come from a prouder, more dignified lineage. Raising up Judah as the tribe through whom their legacy would ultimately continue. And on and on the examples of this surprising God abound. And so yes, this has always been a very surprising God. And thus Mark, more than any other gospel writer, is therefore intent on highlighting this God's always surprising nature so as to explain the significance of Jesus of Nazareth and the kingdom of God that this Jesus promised and proclaimed. In other words, Mark wants to impress upon his readers just how counterintuitive this Jesus character is as it pertains to all expectations surrounding what the coming Messiah would be like and what he would do. Just as no one would have assumed Moses to have been the one to lead their liberation from Egypt, and just as no one would have assumed David to have been God's choice to rule them once liberated, so likewise would no one have assumed that a man like Jesus would be the one able to liberate them from the powers of sin and evil and death itself. Yet, Mark's gospel makes the case, this is precisely what has happened. That God has used the mysterious to confound the wise. That God has used the humble to bring low the mighty. That God has used a nameless Nazarene carpenter to save a broken world from its bleak predicament. And speaking of bleak predicaments, the headlines these past two weeks have just been devastating, have they not? At least 500 killed in hospital strike, headline reads. More than 1,000 children dead, how can we even begin to mourn? Another headline reads. We were in hell. Another headline reads, images of dead babies, of slaughtered civilians, of torched and toppled homes and hospitals and houses of worship. It's just all been so bleak and devastating. Yes, we watch the news and we read about the devastation unfolding and we feel the heaviness of sin and evil and brokenness upon us as human beings. For in having to see such grim images with our own eyes, we are brought face to face with the reality that there is indeed a brokenness in our humanity. Crookedness in the timber of our souls that no amount of effort or spirituality or good intention can indeed make fully straight. That there just is a brokenness 
These are dark words, I know. But these are dark times. And part of Christian truth-telling is to refuse to be overly sanguine about the sinfulness of humanity or about the brokenness of this good world that God created. This part of Christian truth-telling is to be honest about the fact that despite our best efforts and despite our most sincere prayers, precious babies like the one we've just dedicated are still susceptible to being visited and preyed upon by all the evils of this world, and that what's more, once grown, such children have within themselves to perpetrate such acts of evil too, that all of us do. Yes, unfortunately, such sober reminders are part of Christian truth-telling. But then so too is this part of Christian truth-telling as well. The promised hope that it won't always be this way. The promised hope that God has already acted upon the world stage in such a way as to bring to an end fully and finally such evil and barbarity and brokenness. And therefore that what appears to be the inevitable way of things today will be swiftly reversed in the final transformation of things that will attend the return of Christ Jesus with his kingdom. Christian truth-telling requires both of these reminders. The reminder of our tragic human condition, as well as the good news of our surprising liberation from it. Both. Which leads me back now to the surprising nature of God. And to Mark's effort to draw our attention to how this surprising God has time and again chosen to work in this broken, fallen world. By the time Mark is writing his gospel, likely about a quarter century after the death and resurrection of Jesus, by this point, countless people had given their lives over to this new faith. Their surrender and their conversion to Christianity, having been predicated upon their belief that Jesus meant it when he said that the kingdom of God had drawn near and that he, Jesus, would soon be returning with the fullness of his kingdom. All these years later, 25 years of waiting for Jesus seems like nothing to us. But to those doing the waiting then, 25 years felt like a lifetime. In fact, for some of them, it was a lifetime. And so quite understandably, many of them, by the time Mark was writing this gospel, were asking questions quite similar to the questions that we are asking today. Namely, if God is really in control... And where is he? If God's kingdom has indeed really drawn near, then where exactly is it when we need it most? For remember, by this point in church history, Christians were being killed and persecuted, particularly in and around Rome where Mark's gospel is believed to have originated. And so, quite naturally, these early Christians had plenty of questions and concerns. And therefore, in effort to faithfully respond to these questions, 
Mark made as a primary theme of his gospel the always surprising, always counterintuitive nature of their God. And thus, to bring most fully this theme out, Mark then went to links to show how hidden the nature of God in Jesus was, even to those beholding him with their very own eyes. They looked at him but did not perceive him, Mark explains, quoting the Old Testament prophet Isaiah. They listened to him but they did not understand what he was saying. In other words, Mark's whole gospel presents Jesus as the ultimate surprise coming from the always surprising God of their ancestors. Things with this God, Mark is saying, are never what they seem on the surface. Therefore, don't judge the promise and the possibility of the kingdom held out for us by this God by what we immediately see and hear and understand. Rather, he is saying, let us judge the promise and the possibility of the kingdom by our faith in what this God has time and again done for us in ways we could have never anticipated nor imagined. He has always worked in ways that we haven't fully perceived at the time, Mark is saying. And then to most clearly illustrate his point, Mark foregrounds the parable of the mustard seed in a way that the synoptic gospels otherwise do not, making this particular parable central to the entire story that his gospel is telling. For the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed, Jesus says in this parable. A seed which, when sown, is but the smallest of all seeds... Yet when it is full grown becomes the greatest of all trees. Then reminding his disciples that a seed grows on account of rains over which one has no control and via a process through which one cannot fully understand, Jesus then concludes by saying, When the grain is ripe, though, a farmer goes in with his sickle because the harvest has come. Mark's point to his original readership being this. I know it may not look like the kingdom of God has drawn near. I know the deadly persecutions and the rejection by our own family members and the ostracism from polite society might appear to be in vain. But remember, the way this God has worked from the very beginning has always been counterintuitive. For remember, things with this God have never been quite as they seem. And so remember, time and again, just as we have been about to give up, the sickle of this surprising God indeed comes and He frees us from Egypt. Or He ushers us home from exile. Or He selects for us as shepherd a king. Or he shows up for us in the person of a Nazarene carpenter. This is just how this God works, Mark is saying. So don't lose faith in the promise of his peaceable coming kingdom. And don't lose hope in trying to live today as if it were already fully finally here. And don't give up trying to make it here now evermore as it will be then for his kingdom, Mark is saying. Just like God himself will indeed come to us when we least expect it in surprising, always counterintuitive ways. This, Mark is saying, is just how this God 
works. In the novel, All the Light That We Cannot See, a scientist explains the very nature of light by saying, the electromagnetic spectrum runs to zero in one direction and to infinity in the other, and so mathematically all of light is invisible. This counterintuitive lesson, which comes early in the story, becomes then the primary theme for this Pulitzer Prize-winning novel. This theme that despite the abject horrors of something like World War II, the subject of the novel, that there is nonetheless an immense amount of goodness and beauty and decency and kindness in the world, almost all of it which we ourselves cannot now see. And in this way, Mark's gospel might well be retitled, All the Kingdom That We Cannot See. For Mark wants to persuade us that despite the abject awfulness that we so often see around us, that despite wars and rumors of wars, that despite the reality of slaughtered innocents and wrecked lives and ravaged homes, that despite all of that, the surprising God made known to us in Jesus is indeed at work in the world, that his seed has indeed been planted, and that small though this seed might be, and despite the fact that rains indeed do come night and day, that this seed is indeed growing we know not how. And that eventually, come harvest time, this seed will grow into the largest of all trees, into the tree of healing that we who have confessed Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior have all this time trusted in and worked for and oriented our lives toward. So do not give up on this Jesus or his coming kingdom, Mark is imploring us. Us every bit as much as his original readers then. Do not give up on this surprising God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. For when the time is ripe, Mark is saying, all that is invisible will be revealed. And all that is right now hidden will be fully and finally made known in the mystery of God. Somewhere in Gaza right now, I am certain of it, there is against all odds... Some act of kindness and decency and generosity of spirit taking place between an Israeli and a Palestinian. Some simple act of beauty that we'd have no way of categorizing save to describe it as a foretaste of God's kingdom come. I can't see it, but I just know that it's there. Just as I know that right now against all odds there is some act of kindness and decency and generosity of spirit taking place between a Ukrainian and a Russian somewhere. And for that matter, I simply know that there are acts of kindness and decency and generosity of spirit taking place between all sorts of people who are otherwise at enmity and war and in conflict with one another. I can't see it, but I just know that it's there.
Yes, in a world as dark as ours is at the moment still, if we believe the good news of the gospel, we know that there is still so much light that we cannot now see. So much light. For the darkness tells us that, for the gospel tells us that darkness cannot drive out light like this. All these years later, in this harrowing moment, let us hear the good news of Mark's gospel. And let us be surprised anew by it. And let us once more believe in it. The good news that the kingdom of God has indeed drawn near. For as Mark says, this is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And all people said, Amen. And I'll be down front now to receive any who might this day want to follow this surprising Jesus of Nazareth. This one in whom God was made known and who in the fullness of time will make true God's coming kingdom. Any who might want to recommit themselves to his way. Any who might want to join our membership here at Boulevard. Or any who might simply want to pray with me about any manner of things on your heart.